Welcome to the week in Reorg Europe. My name is Luca Rossi, I'm a reporter and I will be joined by my London colleagues, reporter Jay Shrikalia, legal analyst Chetna Mystery and analyst Ben Kovacka. In this episode of our European podcast, we take a look at UK restaurant chain Prezzo's debt of negotiations and explore the current CVA bandwagon, which is now associated with the changing British high street. We also discuss the latest development in the Greek marine fuel trader Aegean. First, let's have a look at what moved the market. This week, one of the most topical high-yield and leverage finance names has been German perfumery Douglas. Some CLOs reduced their exposure to the company after disappointing May results, which caused a drop in the company's loans and bonds to the mid-80s. Another credit under investor scrutiny was Greek gaming company Intralot, whose bonds have fallen 20 points in the past two months because of its exposure to Turkey and some difficulties in renewing one of its most important contracts. Last but not least, a lot of investors wondered what was going on with Astaldi's capital increase and the sale of its stake in the third Vosphorus bridge. We have outlined some possible scenarios if the Italian construction company fails to complete its rights issue. For additional information, make sure to check our article on the website. Now, our main topic this week is casual dining chain Prezzo. Jeshri, why has the story been so topical? Well, for a company with just 155 million in bank debt, the Prezzo situation got pretty ugly and that's what makes it interesting. The UK chain is owned by TPG, which owns Poundworld, which collapsed into administration last month after rescue talks with potential buyers failed. It owns Tess Global, which is on the verge of being split and sold. And of course, Prezzo, where lender-owner negotiations that have been going on for months showed the first signs of closing just last week. Why have this negotiation uh, taken such a long time? Well, Prezzo was a pretty concentrated deal until Carlisle got their hands on a sweet slice that gave them a minority blocking stake. They bought 36% of the 130 million loan in the mid-60s with a view to take over the Italian chain. And they were prepared to make it difficult for lenders. But what I think they didn't expect is that lenders and TPG would fight back. To give you some background, the lender group in the loan was pretty concentrated, but once Prezzo sales took a hit, lenders started to try to shift small pieces of the loan at 80. And this was a year ago when EBDA was around the mid 30 million pound mark with leverage heading towards three and a half times. At the time, Management told lenders it has plans to boost brand image and sales, but these didn't quite take off. Prezzo's sales kept declining. They breached covenants in December, and then later in March, the CEO quit. Advisors were drafted in. Lender sponsor negotiations kicked off. TPG even considered selling the company, but talks broke down. Eventually, the company launched a CVA in February this year. Now, we will be discussing how CVAs, or company voluntary agreements, work shortly. So stay tuned. But the process allows the company to cut down the number of restaurants or stores to reduce rent costs. And Prezzo wasn't alone here. 
we had Jamie's Italian doing CVAs, Byron doing CVAs, and a host of high street retailers also jumped on the bandwagon. The process led to Prezzo closing 94 stores nationwide, but they still had to deal with the debt restructuring talks. So what were the challenges here? I think the difficulty was to find a deal that gave a fair recovery to all parties involved. There was TPG on one side pitching proposals and Carlisle on the other side with their own proposals. And the lender group, known as the G5, which comprised Barclays, CQS, Investcorp, Mizuhu and Partners Group, had to pick a deal. And they would go with whoever offered the best recovery. And it became very obvious, very quickly, that the lender group did not want to cut a deal with Carlisle because the terms were too aggressive. And this annoyed Carlisle. Now, Carlisle had a blocking stake. They had power and they used it. The situation escalated when Prezzo's 25 million RCF was put into an escrow type account under lender control. So when the company needed funds, lenders took a vote on whether to give access. Very recently, Prezzo was in a situation where they needed those funds to pay bills and Carlisle refused. They blocked the vote. Prezzo managed to get Barclays, who was the security agent on the account, to release the funds. And this led to Carlisle hiring litigators and threatening legal action against Barclays. Well, this uh, doesn't really sound like the best way to close a deal, right? So what is the situation right now? Well, TPG responded by agreeing to buy out Carlisle's 36% blocking stake at around 70% of its value. And now with Carlisle out the picture, lenders are negotiating on a debt proposal with TPG to help turn around the business. And we will see very soon what this will look like. So I have another question. What does this mean for the UK casual dining sector as a whole, a sector which has been challenged for some time now? And what are the hurdles and will they continue to impact in the near future? I think so. The nation has been in political uncertainty for a while now, ever since the UK referendum vote to the current Brexit deal or no deal drama. Consumers are fussier. They are way more cautious when spending. On the other hand, retailers face national living wage increases and a rise in business rates. They are being hit from FX because of the weakening pound. For, re- for restaurants, there's inflationary pressure on commodities such as butter, milk, wheat, sugar. These are key ingredients. For Italian chains, Prices have increased on olive oil and mozzarella. And the casual dining sector is super competitive, especially in UK's main cities. There is three to four versions of Italian cuisines on just one street in London. A good example of this is Pizza Express, which is performing well regionally, but struggling to keep up within the M25 region. 
Okay, thanks, Jay Shree. Uh, let's change the topic right now. So, Chetna, please tell us what is a CVA and why we are seeing this revival of them at the moment. Um, a company voluntary arrangement or CVA is essentially a compromise or other arrangement between a company and its creditors, which is given effect under the Insolvency Act. A CVA binds all unsecured creditors of the company if the requisite threshold majorities are voting in favor of the proposals at a meeting. In terms of the thresholds, the CVA must be approved by at least 75% in value of the company's creditors voting at the creditors' meeting. CVAs are initiated by the directors of the company, so it's a company-led process, and the directors will be involved in drafting the proposals with the help of their advisors. They'll also appoint the insolvency practitioner who will supervise the implementation process of the CVA. CVAs are commonly used when a company has large amounts of lease liabilities. Given the challenging market conditions at the moment, they seem to be an obvious choice for companies in the retail and casual dining sectors who are, who are having financial difficulties. Retail and dining chains are using the CVA process to get out of expensive leases and to close branches or to secure substantial rent reductions to make sites more viable. Creditors will largely accept the CVA proposals because they provide a better outcome for them than a liquidation scenario. It also gives them clarity in terms of knowing what they will get and when. In the last year or so, we have seen well-known brands pursue this particular route. Examples include House of Fraser, Prezzo, Jamie's Italian, New Look and Carpet Right. So what are some of the pros of using the CVA process? Some of the main advantages of the CVA are that because it's an informal insolvency process, it doesn't involve the court. Consequently, it's cheaper than the other formal processes like administration and a scheme, which ultimately means that there will be more money available for the company and its creditors. Another advantage is that directors stay in control of the company, which is able to carry on trading. There's no investigation into what went wrong and no report on the director's conduct. This is really important in many specialized industries and sectors because no one knows the business better than the experts, the directors and or the owner of the company. A CVA can also improve cash flows relatively quickly, increasing working capital. Um, they also allow steps to be taken to reduce outgoings by terminating onerous contracts, such as supply contracts, we've already talked about leases, um, and even employment contracts. Another advantage is that it allows the company to restructure its lease obligations on a mass scale, um, and the company doesn't therefore need to negotiate with individuals. Um, when you look at retail CVAs, it wouldn't need to negotiate with individual landlords. They can also allow the company time to restructure their business model so that the company becomes profitable again with the benefit of a professional business rescue team. And lastly, unlike an administration, they're not publicly advertised, which can be a big benefit too. 
Okay, that's that's very interesting. But what are some of the cons of using this uh, process? I think one of the main disadvantages is the fact that the CVA doesn't bind secured or preferential creditors. So the company will have to deal with them separately or potentially face uh, legal action in the courts. Um, the, pro the process and the proposal also needs to be initiated by the directors of the company. I've said before that it's a company-run process, and therefore the directors will need to agree to the process, and some of them, because they may have their own views about the best way forward for the company, may see it as a last resort. Additionally, any failure to keep the arrangements which have been agreed to under the CVA um, could mean that the company may face financial difficulty again. Um, and another disadvantage is that obtaining future credit may be a problem. Could you please explain us how can you actually challenge a CVA process? Once the CVA has been approved by the requisite majorities, challenges can only be made by an application to the court, either on the basis that the arrangement unfairly prejudices the interests of a creditor or that there's been some material irregularity in relation to the, the decision, decision process or at the creditor meeting where the proposal was approved. These ultimately are both questions of fact um, and whether a CVA is fair will depend on the, its overall effect. Are these challenges to CVAs pretty common or not? A CVA can treat different unsecured creditors in different ways, um, and this is the approach that the retail CVAs have adopted very recently and in the past in treating landlords differently from other unsecured creditors as well as between themselves. In recent months, we've seen quite a spate of CVAs, as, as we've also already mentioned, and landlords may be feeling a little bit disgruntled at the effects of the process on them, given the, given the fact that it forces them to pay out for the failure of the company. But in essence, they ultimately have a very limited say on whether the process goes ahead or not. Uh, to this extent, we may be starting to see the beginnings of a fight back. In a recent example, the House of Fraser CVA was one of the first times that landlords, landlords posed a real threat as to whether the CVA would be approved. Prior to the approval, landlords held talks with their legal advisors in relation to blocking the process. The basis of their case was ultimately the fact that they felt that they were being treated unequally and unfairly compared to the company's other creditors, their banks, bondholders and shareholders. However, that being said, despite the initial response, the CVA was later approved. Um, and so, to this extent, aside from that example, challenges aren't that common. The evidential burden on creditors is likely to be high, and creditors may not want to be involved in a negative PR situation where a proposal which is intended to save a business and thousands of jobs is challenged. Ultimately, if a CVA fails because of a challenge by a creditor, the company is likely to end up in an administration or liquidation, which is likely to be worse for a creditor than if the CVA is implemented. 
Okay, let's move to another credit now. We want to look at Aegean, the Greek fuel logistics company. Ben, tell us more about it. Right. So Aegean stock and bond price have been through a ro roller coaster ride in the past two months. The convertible 4% 2018 notes, due November, dropped 40 points to mid-50s beginning June 5th on the news of 200 million receivables write-off report and failure to file its 2017 annual report. A month later, the notes rebounded 20 points to mid-70s as Mercuria and Aegean signed Memorandum of Understanding for Mercuria to provide 1 billion trading facility and at least 30 million in liquidity for a pro forma 30% stake in the business. On the equity side, the volatility has been much more rampant, uh, with uh, the stock price, uh, stock price dropping from about $3 per share to $0.70 cents, uh, lows, rebounding to $2 uh, per share following the Mercuria deal. The stock has traded down slightly, quoted at $1.6 per share as of today, 18th of July. Now, it is not surprising to see Mercuria here. The trader provided working capital lines to Noble, another troubled uh, trader and a regular here in the last quarter of 2017, as bank, fi bank financing dried up. Obviously, Mercuria is not uh, being a white knight here per se, and the trader holds uh, all the negotiating power in both instances, really. And uh, Mercuria has uh, until August 15th to decide whether to proceed uh, on the deal. And both the note holders uh, and equity holders are both uh, holding breath, waiting for the decision. Should the deal fall through, though, uh, this would be a dire signal to the market regarding the prospects of the company. And without the liquidity, the company will very likely not be able to shore up cash to pay off the convertibles in November. So could you tell us a bit more about what the company does and what are the main financial indicators of the group? Right. So Aegean is an international marine fuel logistics company, which is uh, just a pretty long way of saying that the company delivers marine fuel to vessels in ports with its fleet, fleet of tankers. The business model is very simple, with the company buying the petroleum products, generally on a spot basis, and also sells them uh, also on spot basis. And I will touch on the hedging policy and the ballooning hedging contract uh, in a second. So first, let's uh, get to the net leverage of the company. It is 19.9 times with uh, 766 million of secured debt, uh, predominantly in trade credit, and uh, 241.9 million under two convertible notes. Only 200 million of the 1 billion total trade credit facility is committed. And uh, so therefore the Mercuria facility would bring uh, a lot of the needed stability for the company. Uh, market cap of the company is 62.2 million, and this is significantly down from the peak of uh, 665 uh, million at the end of 2014. So Asian's top line plummeted uh, around 37% uh, in 2015, as the oil price fell 48% in a year. And uh, this helped to expand the margins quite significantly in the short run, pretty much doubling them to around 8%. Uh, this was because the spread the company earns on sale is uh, earned on an absolute basis. However, the margins normalized by uh, 2017. And the impact on the business uh, only became apparent as uh, gross margins fell back down to 4.4% in the fourth quarter of 2017. And this is down from, uh, as I mentioned, 8%, which was in 2016. So uh, for, uh, it's uh, quite interesting to also know that this 4.4% is also uh, the average in a year's uh, of the stable oil price. So in order to offset the drop uh, in the prices, the company aggressively tried to grow its volumes. Uh, AGN managed to increase the volumes by 46% uh, between 2014 and 2017, in fact. 
but the ag aggressive strategy likely led to loosening of uh, counterparty standards and the receivables doubled between 2015 and 2017. And you know this resulted in weak cash flow because uh, of the working capital buildup and eventually led to the 200 million uh, receivables write-off, which, uh, which began this entire uh, fall in the notes and the equity price. Now back to hedging. The company enters into sale contracts first, followed by a purchase agreement, which exposes the company to price risk in oil inflationary environment. And uh, however, AGN discloses that the price risk uh, is only borne by the company for about a week. So AGN's hedging portfolio ballooned from about 2 million metric tons, uh, well, six years ago, to 30 million in 2017, uh, while volumes sold increased uh, by only about 71% to 17 million. So this means that the hedging portfolio is about twice the size of the volume sold. So this could be to protect the margins in the inflationary environment, as we mentioned uh, previously, but the growth in hedging contracts is really stark. And uh, also, the company lost 30 million through fair value fall of derivatives in 2016 and further 12 million in 2017. Now, given the rise in the oil price, this would suggest that the company was short oil in this period. And for the margin protection purposes, the company would look to long oil. And therefore, it is really unclear uh, what, what is the strategy of the company with, uh, with hedging at the moment. So does this company have any levers to pull? So... <laughs> That is an interesting question. And look, the company's cash generation uh, is a function of, uh, of volumes, oil prices, and, uh, and its profitability. And, and this would generally be ability to slash some SGNA to increase the EBITDA margin. And the company is definitely taking on the latter. Uh, and this is through uh, optimizing SGNA, which sh uh, should yield about 25 million in cost cuts. And the company also closed uh, its loss-making Singapore operations and right-sides its uh, US West Coast operations towards the end of 2017. However, this resulted in 15.2% uh, percent, uh, sa uh, sales uh, decrease quarter on quarter. And, and I mean, the company was lucky because uh, this was more than offset in increasing oil price. But should the oil price be, uh, remain stable, this would have had a significant impact. So um, the business can improve margins partially through through closing of the loss-making operations, but this is done at the expense uh, the expense of, of volume growth. And the top line is uh, crucial for Aegean. So so the company is really stuck between uh, between these two initiatives, which is uh, uh, which is the need to increase the top line and at the same time to to cut costs and get out of the loss-making operations. And it's needless to say that its clients, which are generally the shipping companies, uh, are themselves operating in highly competitive environments. So, so you know, there is no appetite from their side either to really to really splash cash uh, towards aging. So, in order to get to, to, for example, ten times leverage, the company would have to generate EBITDA of about uh, ninety million, uh, which um, at four point four percent long term gross margin uh, translates to. Uh, the need to grow the top line to about 7 billion, which is roughly 25% about the annualized fourth uh, quarter level. That being said, this could happen quickly if oil prices spike, but, uh, but really this is outside uh, of the control of the company. So how can this situation evolve in the future? So as I mentioned, the main signal to the market will be Mercuria's decision. Should the deal go through, uh, Mercury will be sending a positive signal to the market uh, that it backs the business with trade credit as well as uh, becoming a shareholder. 
if this happens, there is a strong case for the convertibles due 2018 to be repaid, uh, possibly with cash pile in conjunction with uh, Mercury's uh, liquidity injection. Now, this would reduce any buffer for the company to absorb uh, any cash burn. Uh, the company burned over 200 million in cash over the last two years as receivables piled up, uh, which ultimately culminated in uh, the 200 million receivable write down. Now, it is interesting to see whether uh, the company can continue selling the volumes uh, as it cracks down on the credit terms and counterparties. And this ties back to the importance of the top line, as I mentioned earlier. So if the deal does not go through, uh, now that's a really tough one. Uh, the company would struggle to scrape to get a cash to uh, to take out the 2018 notes and uh, and refinancing uh, the situation uh, looks highly unlikely. Um, so, so maybe we would be looking at the capital raise. Now in that instance, uh, there is a room for recapitalization uh, with convertible holders possibly being invited to participate uh, uh, in, this, uh, in this race. So should the deal fall through, Beyond the inability to repay the notes outstanding, the company would also be starved of tra trade credit as 80% of the current 1 billion trade facility is uncommitted. The facility would likely not be available to AGN as the situation continues to deteriorate. As a result, in absence of a capital raise, restructuring incentivizing lenders to provide a trading facility backstop might be an option. And this would allow the investors to potentially recover investment in the long run uh, through higher oil prices. Now, this obviously assumes that there is a viable business model behind the company and uh, the issues that uh, brought the company to the current situations do not continue to persist. One thing we haven't mentioned uh, are the corporate governance issues, which uh, kind of ties back to what we just mentioned. Aegean attempted to acquire HEC in the beginning of the year. Uh, which is a company uh, owned by previous founder Dimitris uh, Melisanidis. And uh, this deal would return control to Melisanidis uh, with a 33% stake in Aegean. And the deal attracted a lot of attention due to the unfavorable terms. Uh, and uh, Stiefel actually went as far as uh, calling it the most questionable shipping deal they've seen. The deal fell through on shareholder protests concerning the valuation of HEC. And uh, the deal was basically a valued... Uh, valued HEC 24 times uh, trailing EBITDA. This contrasts with the narrative that the company was trying to push, which was uh, basically pushing the valuation of the deal based on 2018 forward EBITDA pro forma for a lot of items, including another acquisition. So another interesting fact is that Melisanidis uh, sold his 22% stake for 99.6 million in August of 2016 at uh, $8.8 .8 per share which is 5.5 times above the current price per share. A great timing uh, to the deal. Melisanidis uh, might still be interested in regaining control as we've seen through the HEC deal, uh, especially with the current low valuation, but uh, I guess this remains to be seen. Well, thank you very much, Ben, for all this, and uh, thank you all for listening. See you in two weeks.